0: This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford HealthCare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com.
1: Welcome to Healthy Rounds, a show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you for this 51st consecutive program in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. As always, on this program for the next hour, we want to empower All of our listeners with accurate science-based information, because it's so important with the decisions we have to make going forward, and it's important for our conversations now with our fellow citizens who have questions. And when these discussions come up, you want to be able to talk to them intelligently and hopefully educate others on the topic. The scorecard is looking better. I mean, on the downside, we now have over 572,000 American deaths from this virus. But we are moving in the right direction. 240 million vaccines have been distributed in this country. Over 100 million Americans are fully vaccinated as of today. That's 40% of this country is fully vaccinated and we're starting to see the benefits of that the average the seven-day average of deaths now in the United States is six hundred and eighty-four that's a big difference from what we had before you remember in January we were talking about three thousand deaths a day so that number is coming down as we are able to get more Americans vaccinated. In Connecticut, our positivity rate is now 1.34%. That's a tremendous increase from what we had before. Okay, We were in trouble before. So now by decreasing that percentage, we're starting to see the benefits, the benefits economically, the benefits in what we are able to do without masks but we must continue to be cautious and i have to say the, the guidelines coming out when to wear a mask when not to wear a mask are, are quite confusing but we do know that there are certain things when traveling traveling has begun to open up delta has now announced they're opening the middle seat on there they're the last airline to open up the middle seat on their aircraft. But we do know that when the middle seat is occupied, you have a 57% more risk of contracting COVID-19. Now we've gotten better in terms of cleaning aircraft and air filtration, but again, it's something that we have to be mindful of and wearing a mask is important. We know that masks work. One of the new challenges with vaccinating has been that some vaccines, the messenger RNA vaccines, most notably Pfizer and Moderna, require a two-shot sequence. So you get your first vaccination. If it's Pfizer, you get another one three weeks later. If it's Moderna, four weeks later. And you can get them up to six weeks later if there's some delay. The challenge now is some people are just getting one dose and not going back for the second injection. And that's a problem. Although you do get some protection, we know now that you get, it's about 80% effective uh, when you get the one vaccine, if you just get one dose. But that leaves you a 20% chance of getting COVID-19. The other problem with that is we're uncertain as to how long that 80% lasts. We now know that with the full vaccination, we're confident that you get a year of full protection. But we don't know it with just one. And the other goal is to try to reach what's called sterilizing immunity. That's where you are sufficiently immunized so that you don't spread the virus to other people. So if you're only getting one dose of the vaccine, you are still at risk for spreading the virus. So so what if you don't? So what happens if you get sick with COVID in between doses? Well, we know that you should still get the second dose. If if even if you in, if you intend to get the second dose, if you got sick in between, Once your symptoms clear, you should go forward with getting it. Why would people get sick? Well, a lot of times people let their guard down. So I've gotten one vaccine. uh, Maybe I'll take a little risk and uh, go to a restaurant or go to a large gathering and take off my mask. Also, it depends what region. If you're traveling, it depends on what region in the country you're going to. The good news in that is that we now have a decline in infections in 42 states, but in the Pacific Northwest, in Oregon and Washington, those numbers are going up and there has been some vaccine hesitancy in those states. So there are states where the numbers are still high, Michigan, still high, getting better. So you have to be careful when you're in between doses. It's not until two weeks after your second dose of the messenger RNA vaccine that you will be fully immunized. One thing that's certain, the vaccine is not causing you to get COVID. I know it it sounds ridiculous to have to say that, but we need to let people know that. If they got sick in between, if they contracted COVID, it could not be from the vaccine because those vaccines don't contain any virus. They are a primer. Some interesting information, and we're all going to come up against this. You know, I I talk to patients all the time. I ask if they've been vaccinated. And I'm happy to say overwhelmingly so many have been vaccinated. and. Despite political party or, or whatever, I rarely come against up against somebody who is firm about this. So, so I try to share some points, and I heard in a podcast this week several good points by Dr. Tom Frieden, um, who is an ID physician, a public health expert, and the former director of the CDC. Actually, I found out that one of my mentors during my internship was Dr. Julian Frieden at... New Rochelle Hospital was his father. But he brought up five points in a discussion that might help people who are vaccine hesitant. The first point he raised was, we know that the virus goes all over your body and stays there at least a week. So if you get infected, that virus is in you for a week and potentially causes long-term problems. We're seeing that now. We're seeing that now in people who are attending the clinics. Hartford HealthCare has a clinic just for people now who have long-term effects. These are people who are months after and still having trouble thinking clearly and getting back to their pre-infectious state. The other thing we know is the vaccine, as I mentioned, is a primer to the immune system. It triggers the immune system to attack the virus, and immediately the vaccine leaves your system. It's gone. So two points. The virus stays. Vaccine goes away. Another point is, and we've said it on this program before, over 95% of doctors... Who were offered the vaccine got it as soon as possible and i'm among them my family members are among them and we went out and got the vaccine we are the people who probably have the most familiarity with the science behind the vaccine and still ran out and got it as quickly as we could that must tell you something the other thing we're seeing now is The fourth point, the more we vaccinate, the faster we get back to fixing our economy and getting more jobs. We're starting to see that. We talked about that, right? In Connecticut, our positivity rate is now down to 1.34%. And things are starting to open up and more people are getting back to work. The other point, and the final point, is that we also know statistically that if we get vaccinated, we will save at least 100,000 more lives of people who would otherwise be killed by COVID-19. 100,000 more American lives can be saved. I never thought we'd be talking about these numbers. 51 shows ago, we were staggered by the fact that we might might have 40,000 deaths in this country. And now we're at 572,000 and growing. Granted, we only had 684 deaths as the average daily. That's still too many, folks. And it's not time to let your guard down. Another story that, that I heard this week was one related by Chris Christie. Uh, Many of you are familiar with him, former governor of New Jersey, and uh, ran for president and was a victim of the coronavirus. And he was a victim of the virus because he caught it in the safest place in the United States, the White House, the White House. He was going there on a daily basis to meet with the president. You would go in the Eisenhower building, get tested, Wait. If you were negative, you could go ahead into the West Wing. That was the plan. And yet he became very, very ill. In fact, in the story he relates, there were seven people working directly with the president to prepare him for a debate. Of those seven people who worked together for four hours a day for four days, Of those seven people, six people all got the coronavirus in the safest place in the United States, supposedly. Chris Christie was the sickest of those people. Naturally, the former president got it. Also, Hope Hicks, Kellyanne Conway, Bill Stepien, and Stephen Miller. Those were the six people. But here's the real interesting part of the story. Chris Christie was the sickest. The president right behind him both needed hospitalization. The third sickest person was Hope Hicks. This was a young woman in her early 30s who ran between four and five miles a day. And she was seriously ill for 10 days. That tells us that we are dealing with the virus that has a lot of variability. So folks sitting back and saying, I'm in great shape, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I have don't have diabetes, I'm not obese, I'm not old, you could still get it. And those are the numbers we're starting to see now in these ICUs. We can't let our guard down. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to talk a little bit more about uh, what's going on with the coronavirus and information you need to protect yourself? You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And. One of the biggest items in the news this week that concerns COVID-19 and the pandemic is what's going on in India. India is the second largest most populated country in the world, 1.3 billion people. It's divided up into 29 states and seven territories. So altogether, 35 different ruling areas, and in many cases, Different languages are spoken in different states. They have a democratic government, a parliamentary government. And it's interesting how they responded to the pandemic. So in March of last year, they reported their three first cases. And they were actually medical students who were studying and working in China, who tested positive for COVID-19 in India. And what happened was they locked down their country. It was one of the most stringent lockdowns we had and saw. They locked down the country for three weeks. The only thing you could do was go out, buy essential things. Police were all over making sure the country was locked down. And as a result, their fatality rate was among the lowest in the world at 2.4%. And they were well ahead of this virus. Like most places, they had some surges. But in January, they started their vaccination program with the AstraZeneca vaccine and began vaccinating but here's what happened despite a slight surge in January they got a hold of it but in March they had another surge and the surge came after several super spreader events one that's most notable was a religious ceremony where two million people came to one place in close quarters, unmasked. Also, they began to let their guard down with respect to sporting events and other large gatherings, cricket matches. And yet they had not achieved enough of a vaccination rate to protect the population. Right now, it is just absolutely frightening they now have over 205,000 deaths and believe me these numbers are low they are absolutely low because it's difficult for them to make calculations they have run out of oxygen oxygen the one thing we need to keep people alive from covid-19 when they're early when they get early symptoms is oxygen they can't produce enough oxygen in the country Because it's something you make, right? We use compressors, but they cannot produce it fast enough for the demand. The best estimate is there are 350,000 new cases a day. And again, a very low estimate because many people live in rural communities. So their fatality rate continues to climb and they look to the world for help. It's important for us, the United States, and other countries to help them right now. And the reason is, variants. Something we talk about on this show all the time. This virus varies and becomes more potent, more dangerous with each positive case. We have now identified at least four variants coming out of India. Two cases have already been reported in this country in the Midwest with, a, with new variants from India. That's why we've had to close the border here and need to keep it closed until we can help them get control of this. The United States, I'm proud to say, has now begun vaccine diplomacy. Vaccine diplomacy is... We've got a lot of vaccine here. We haven't even started to use the AstraZeneca vaccine, and it's speculated that we have 300 million doses of that. That is another virus vector vaccine like Johnson & Johnson, a one-and-done vaccine that has a long shelf life. So with that, we are beginning to distribute those doses once that it passes all our federal safety recommendations. Canada is another example. Canada closed their border, we're doing well, and suddenly they've got a problem. In Western Canada, they have the P1 variant from Brazil. Their numbers are rising. And they don't have a really good distribution system, which I was surprised to find out because... We always think of Canada, it's socialized medicine, centrally managed. It's not. There are different regions manage it separately. So we are sharing vaccine with them as well. So with that, I hope uh, that we understand that this is a global problem, and until we solve it everywhere, we're not going to be safe in this country. Uh, just quickly, I want to extend kudos to the House and Senate uh, here in Connecticut for eliminating the, quotes, religious exemption, close quotes, um, regarding vaccination of children for measles, mumps, rubella. This was a situation where the squeaky wheel did not get the grease. And those who sat by because of their illnesses, who could not be vaccinated, finally won out. I heard all the arguments. But there are only two types of arguments. There's the science argument and a political argument. The science is clear. Vaccines are the greatest contribution modern medicine has given to humanity. There's no question about it. There are no statistics to the contrary. There are anecdotal cases. There is pseudoscience. There is Internet science. There's always a political discussion. Does it have to do with freedom, rights, and things like that? And those those arguments will go on. But from a public health standpoint, I'm proud that our elected officials in Connecticut did the right thing. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Ms. Allison Schultz. She is a trainer for the Capital Region Medical Reserve Corps and a public health consultant. We're going to talk about the effort here in Connecticut to fight the COVID-19 virus. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to have on today as my guest, Ms. Allison Schultz. Ms. Schultz is a trainer for the Capital Region Medical Reserve Corps. Uh, It's a group I recently became involved with uh, during this unprecedented effort to mobilize volunteers to get out and vaccinate people here in Connecticut. She's also a public health consultant and a professional in that area. Allison, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Alessi. It's great to be here.
1: Um, So can you tell our listeners, what is the MRC, the Medical Reserve Corps?
2: So the Medical Reserve Corps is a volunteer program. It is federally organized, but locally carried out. So we have a network of units across the country. There's more than 750 units in 49 states. And we get support from the federal government, as, as well as the freedom to organize ourselves locally based on the needs of our local community. And we are made up of not just medical volunteers, but also actually the majority of our volunteers are non-medical. So it's really a way for uh, locals to get involved and be prepared for when we experience things just like this pandemic.
1: So what other experiences are there? We're we're dealing with the pandemic now, and obviously that's the largest need, but uh, here in Connecticut and, and probably in other parts of the country, um, when do they mobilize the MRC? The natural disasters or things such as that?
2: Yes, um, that's a perfect example. So, MRC units can be activated for um, any local emergency that impacts um, the healthcare system. So, um, prior to the pandemic, um, every year we saw. Units get activated across the country for natural disasters such as hurricanes, um, the wildfires out in California, floods, you name it. Um, We also were activated over time um, with respect to different disease outbreaks. So, for example, there was a measles outbreak a couple of years ago in New York City, And MRC volunteers there helped get the word out to the community, did education, and also helped with vaccination clinics.
1: When when I look around at our events, uh, it's interesting to see the dichotomy of volunteers. It seems like it's a lot of older people like myself, and very young people who are doing this—it's um, it, so so—it's really spread out um, to some degree. Uh, what's what's the average age, uh, would you say, of volunteers?
2: So um, you make a great point, and actually, I would say the face of the MRC has changed dramatically in the last 14 months. Um, prior to the pandemic, um, I would—you know—I don't have the exact statistics, but if I had to guess, I would say. Um, The average age was probably um, over 55. Um, And we are seeing a lot of younger folks get involved, um, mostly as a result of the pandemic. I think everyone really felt motivated that they wanted to contribute in one way or another to try to help in this situation and get our communities back on our feet. So. Um, It's been very exciting the last 14 14 months. Um, We've seen our Capital Region MRC unit grow from around 250 members to over 1,800, Um, a really rapid um, growth. Uh, And, you know, one of the factors that came into play, especially with the vaccination clinics, is we had businesses encouraging their employees Um, and giving them paid time off to go volunteer, um, which was just a phenomenal partnership. And so um, we have folks of all ages, from 18 and above, um, helping out across the Capital Region um, in various settings, um, and it's been really exciting.
1: Uh, It's also been interesting, well, from my standpoint personally, it, it was my children who got me to do it. Um, uh, they, uh, both being physicians, uh, signed up right away and said, hey, dad, it's something we should do. And uh, it, it's been great. And it's been great to be at these events. I also noticed that at the vaccination events, there's an educational component because um, there are a lot of students there, medical students, pharmacy students. Um, so there's a lot going on from that standpoint. Did you anticipate that?
2: Certainly every response provides some opportunity for learning. Um, but it's, it has been fantastic, especially, you know, for students who maybe saw their, their learning experience impacted by the pandemic and shifting to a lot of remote learning. Um, we've been able to put nursing students, pharmacy students, med students right next to vaccinators. Um, and many of them, you know, went and took the, a step to um, get certified to vaccinate. Um, we also saw a, a huge increase in the number of um, EMTs or emergency medical technicians um, that went out and got got that certification, and so it's um, it's been phenomenal. And I think you know just even the process of um, it's not just about getting a shot. You know, there's definitely education of that happens with the patient—a conversation between the healthcare professional and the patient—to just help them understand um, the the vaccine itself, potential side effects, um, and what they can do after they get their vaccine, um, and the importance of coming back if they if they do get a two series shot to make sure they come back and get that second dose.
1: What about the non medical volunteers? So people are sitting home now thinking, what, what could I be doing, um, to help the MRC? Can we address that? Because there's, there's such a huge need, um, for folks there.
2: Yeah. So, um, I love to tell the story about the MRC, how we have medical in our name, and yet the, the, the biggest category of volunteers, um, in, in the program are non-medical. So, um, I I like to remind people when you go into a doctor's office, there's lots of folks doing non-medical things to make that office um, efficient and effective at fulfilling its mission. And the same thing happens when we're doing things like testing for COVID or um, operating a shelter or uh, standing up a vaccination clinic in the community. So, you know, there are jobs related to registration and paperwork. We, We really... Um, as much as we try to be paperless, there's always going to be some paper involved in terms of documenting um, what we're doing. There's always roles in terms of just helping people move along through a process, so what we call line management or um, flow monitoring, um, you know, directing traffic in parking lots, um, assisting people who may need some... Some help getting through um, a clinic from um, from the you know the entrance to the exit um, monitoring. Um, this was a big thing that we um, added in was the folks that um, work in observation to just make sure that uh, folks are um, feeling okay after their vaccine, not experiencing any. Uh, reactions, and using that time actually to educate people about things like the V-SAFE program, which is a voluntary safety program that people can enroll on their phones while they're sitting there and waiting. So it you don't need to be a medical person to do that. There are lots of roles that um, non-medical folks can do. Um, you know, if we're um, in a, a, a natural disaster event, there could be a call center that needs to be staffed. Um, administrative roles, um, working with data. So um, I encourage everybody to check out the MRC um, and um, be a part of a way your community works to stay resilient.
1: We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back again with my guest, Ms. Allison Schultz, to talk a little bit about how the MRC went about mobilizing everyone to get out and vaccinate Connecticut We also want to talk a little bit about the future and how we need to be prepared in the future for other disasters. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And we're chatting today with my guest, Ms. Allison Schultz who is a trainer for the Capital Region Medical Reserve Corps, Um, and they are the people that really spearheaded the volunteer effort to get out and vaccinate Connecticut citizens. Uh, You know, Allison, you describe the MRC kind of as the bench um, when it comes to supporting things. Can you explain that? uh, why you use that term when you describe the MRC?
2: Sure. So, the MRC itself doesn't just show up at a scene. Um, We are, um, as you said, a a bench resource for when the system gets overwhelmed. So, um, agencies can request the MRC um, at any time when they feel overwhelmed. Um, They just have to tell us what types of resources they're looking for and um, where we need to be. And then we're organized and, and um, deployed to go help. So much of what we prepare for is um, what we talk about, surge capacity when the healthcare system gets overwhelmed. And that could be in the case of a mass casualty, um, where the ERs get overwhelmed. Um, It could be at the scene of, for example, um, a a plane crash um, where we need on-site medical services to help triage and and get folks to the best place um, to meet their needs. Um, Or it could be for a shelter where we're standing up. Um, a um, emergency shelter for evacuees. Those are all instances where the local resources become overwhelmed, and the idea is that this group of volunteers doesn't just show up. They've been working together, training together, and um, they're ready to go. Um,
1: how did you get everybody out there so quickly? Um, you must have had some infrastructure in place to do that.
2: Yeah, that was pretty critical. Um, We have fulfilled um, over 180 requests for our support since this pandemic started. And so the CT response system, which is an online database, um, that's really where folks kind of start. Um, So if people are interested in volunteering with the MRC, they can visit CT response, which is R-E-S-P-O-N-D-S. Dot CT.gov and you fill out an application um, you are then um, vetted um, by the staff of the unit um, licenses are verified and um, then you're um, accepted into the unit and we do have um, an orientation program um, and then the missions are um communicated via online communication. So if we have a request for 20 volunteers to co-help at a clinic, that's posted in CT Responds, and volunteers can look at that. They can look at the date and time, see if it works with their schedule. And with a click of a button, they raise their hand as being available, and then our um, unit leader is able to look at um, which volunteers are available and assign them to the mission give them their instructions around where they need to report, and, and, and that's that. And that's how it happens. So, um, you know, it's, the CT response system has, has really helped move that process efficiently.
1: How do you get funding? I mean, who pays for the infrastructure to get it up and going? Is, is it from private donations? Is it government? Uh, is it federal, state? Uh, how, does it, how does this come about?
2: units, um, you know, across the country are all funded um, slightly differently, but they all also enjoy some core funding that comes from the federal government um, through the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. Those funds come into the state Connecticut um, Department of Public Health and then are distributed to the 24 units that we have in Connecticut. Um, And that's some core funding to provide for some basic administrative staff um the CT response system, that online database, that was put in place by the state of Connecticut um, so that all of our units are able to make use of that system. So it's a mix of federal and state funding. Um, some units do some private fundra- fundraising on their own. And we also, um, from time to time, will apply for grants. So the Capital Region MRC um, is a two-time recipient of um, some smaller grants to um, enhance our
1: capacities. Allison, what's next? So in dealing with the pandemic, we're now seeing a change in how we go out and vaccinate people. We, we're using uh, Dunkin' Donuts Park. Obviously, that's going to be used for baseball now. Uh, and uh, there's a big issue of trying to get to the underserved community and the people who are vaccine-hesitant. So what's the plan going forward for the MRC and how are they going to pivot in this environment?
2: So you're right. I mean, everything with this pandemic is a story of, of shifting and adapting. So um, we are seeing a, a decrease in some of the, um, the larger clinics at the local level because now um, demand for vaccine is less than the supply, um, but some of that activity is now shifting more towards pop-up clinics um, in various places, for example, in Hartford um, where they can do um, smaller temporary clinics and go into neighborhoods. Um, They might go to um, work with a housing authority um, to reach the residents in a specific um, complex. Um, So rather than going to maybe five um, stable Locations, we're kind of moving to a a pop up model where um, we're going into many different parts of the community. Um, And so, and there's also um, a lot of work being done on, um, you know, achieving equity um, in access to vaccines. So we will go where we're asked to go. Um, And so it's, um, we expect that it's going to change in the coming weeks a little bit. Um, and we also anticipate down the road, you know we may be um, requested to help at things like if there ends up being a need for a booster vaccine, uh, we could be helping with those clinics and um, we don't know if those will be large clinics or small pop-ups. Um, it's all a matter of um, wait and see and whatever the situation is, we adapt and and do our part to help out.
1: in closing, Allison, how do people sign up? Um, How do people who are listening today who want to get involved, uh, what should they do as soon as this show is over?
2: I would really encourage listeners to go out to the CT Responds website. It's c-t-r-e-s-p-o-n-d-s dot c-t dot gov. And you can sign up right there. And if you know somebody who lives outside of Connecticut, there are MRC units across the country. You can visit the national MRC website at mrc.hhs.gov.
1: Allison, thank you. Thank you for everything you and all the volunteers do um, to really keep the state of Connecticut safe and healthy and everything you've done to really get our positivity rate down to 1.34%. Great work. Thank you.
2: Thank you, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the
1: show today. Thanks again. Uh, That was our guest today, Ms. Allison Schultz. In closing, I have two stories that are ironic that uh, came up in the last week. Now, as many of you know, we stopped distributing the Johnson and Johnson vaccine for a period of 11 days. And the reason for stopping was because we had six cases of people who developed blood clots. Eventually it was found that there were 15 cases out of what were nine million doses distributed. Out of an abundance of safety The government said, let's stop, look at the problem, and see how we fix it going forward. The irony here is that in the month of April, we had 29 mass shootings in the United States. 29 mass shootings. A mass shooting is one where more than four people were killed. But no one said, let's halt the sale of guns for 11 days. Or even let's halt the sale of high-capacity automatic weapons for 11 days and maybe look at the problem. Is the problem one of the mental state? Is it about making the availability of guns? We have these red flag laws but that didn't work in indiana so it's ironic that we didn't go back and think about that the next irony is a story related to me by my granddaughter Audrey Audrey turned six this week but as many grandparents have great stories about their grandchildren this one has a public health implication there was a discussion at the table about cigarettes Audrey is a six-year-old, overheard this, and looked at us and said, what's a cigarette? Something you can't really imagine, right? Those of us growing up, it was pretty familiar to have people in your family smoking cigarettes. What she pointed out to me was the fact that we have made some success in this world in terms of limiting access to cigarettes and the effects of cigarettes so hopefully Audrey we can leave this world a little bit healthier for you and your generation thanks again to my guest and thanks to Anthony Dorenzo who has been on the board and Jeff Chandler who's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds until next week this is Dr. Anthony Alessi please stay healthy
0: this has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more healthy rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.